You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Here's Nate. Well, the message of the gospel is definitely worth exploration. The book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, is a letter in which he will explore the nooks and crannies of the gospel and how it gives to us as believers a new life, a new society called the church, a new set of standards for life and wonderful and new relationships. The gospel of Christ permeates each and every area uh, of our lives. And the book of Ephesians attempts to get into that message of the gospel in Ephesians 1 through 3 and then demonstrate how that message interacts with and permeates the rest of our lives, practically speaking, in chapter 4 through uh, 6. And so just a powerful epistle that Paul gives to the church in Ephesus and by extension gives to us. Now Paul was more than likely in prison at the time that he wrote this epistle. Uh, It sure sounds as such in Ephesians 3 verse 1. He refers to himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He talks of himself as a prisoner for the Lord in chapter 4 verse 1 and in chapter 6 verse 20 he talks of himself as an ambassador in chains so likely imprisoned likely in the imprisonment there in Acts chapter 28 and so uh, we're dealing with a time now that is about 10 years after Paul had initially gone to the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, where they had a glorious birth uh, as a church. The church in Ephesus was a strong uh, and dynamic fellowship. It says in verse 1, as Paul introduces his epistle, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you, verse 2, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have first here our author. His name is Paul, and uh, you know him as the apostle, a man who previously had hated the church, of course, had been Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, and persecuted the early church but had a radical conversion in Acts chapter 9. And Paul refers to that here in his introduction. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The Lord himself put me into all of this. This is something that man could not do, but that God himself has done. He has made me into an apostle to the church, which would mean that they would be all ears, ready to listen and hear. This is a message from an apostle, Uh, to the church. We have secondly, not just our author, but also our audience. Notice where they were living. Paul says in verse one, you are uh, the saints who are in Ephesus, but secondly, you are faithful in Christ Jesus. They dwelled in both places. First of all, in 
Ephesus, a difficult city, a pagan culture, not an easy place to practice your faith and to exist as a believer, a hard city, uh, but a strong church. And secondly, though, not just in Ephesus, but also in Christ Jesus, absolutely one uh, with uh, the Lord. And Paul refers to them as saints and as faithful uh, in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 3, Paul introduces a what really is just one single complex sentence all the way from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. And, and in this, Paul is going to uh, begin to explain some of the deep blessings that are ours in Christ as a result of the reception of the message of the gospel, receiving Jesus into our lives and hearts. Paul is going to talk about the great standing that we have in Christ with God. Listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, this is one of my favorite verses in all of God's word because it describes for us the incredible position that we have in Jesus, the great blessing that is ours. Notice, first of all, the content of this blessing in verse 3. He says, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And as we move through this epistle, we're going to see that they are heavenly blessings that are given to us in uh, Christ. In chapter 1, verse 20, he'll speak to us of the heavenly places that Jesus is uh, currently seated at. In chapter 2, verse 6, we'll discover once again the heavenly places that we will be seated with Christ at and are currently positionally seated with him in. And on and on through this epistle, we'll see this reference to the heavenly places. And so the content of our blessing is heavenly. It's spiritual versus physical. Now, this is interesting because, of course, for the people of Israel, so many of their blessings were physical in nature. You know, if you walk with me as my covenant people, you live a life of obedience to me, I'll give you rain, I'll give you produce, I'll give you victory over uh, your enemies. A lot of the practical blessings in life connected to their walk with the God of heaven. Uh, but still, they were a covenant people. They had been placed into a place of great blessing, not just physically, but also spiritually uh, from God. But for us as a church, uh, we're in a place where uh, we receive primarily the spiritual and heavenly blessings from the Lord. And as we receive those blessings from the Lord, there's also this practical experience where the Lord will take care of us in some practical and physical ways as well. But in comparing the spiritual blessings with the physical blessings, you're comparing the superior blessings, that which are spiritual and heavenly and eternal, with the inferior blessings, that which is physical and temporary. And so he says, you have 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, the book of Ephesians, as we pass through it, I think will continually remind us of the Old Testament stories of the book of Joshua. What you have there in the book of Joshua is that God had previously declared and had given to the nation of Israel the promised land, the land of Canaan. But they needed to then uh, go into the promised land in every place that the sole of their foot set down upon, God then gave to them uh, as a people. And here now as Christians, one of the first things that we learn is that we have already received every, Paul says in verse 3, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They all belong to us. They are all already ours, but there is now a an appropriation of what God has already given to us. Notice the timing of this blessing as well. He says he has, verse 3, blessed us. It says nothing to do with works, nothing to do with our uh, holiness or godliness. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ has done for us as we've been placed into Christ. And of course, in Christ is the source of blessing. He says the Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The source of our blessing as believers is not just a uh, place, but a person, Jesus Christ. He is our source of blessing. And, and he'll be mentioned in these first few verses, uh, all the way through verse 14, at least 15 times, directly or indirectly. And there's this great position for a Christian. It's called being in Christ and identified with Christ, so closely aligned with Christ, covered by Christ, baptized into his death, his burial, and his resurrection, to where you are now pronounced as one with him and in him. And this is the position, the place of great blessing uh, in God. Now, in verse 4, we move on to the uh, inspection of Paul of this blessing, practically speaking. He says in verse 4, even as he chose us, speaking of the Father, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us, verse 5, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, in the beloved. So as Paul begins to unpack this great blessing that we have in Christ, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, the first thing that he mentions is that we have been chosen by him. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation uh, of the world. And of course, many have struggled with the idea of being chosen. We sometimes like to feel as if we were the ones in control and we were the ones doing the choosing. And so often that's exactly how it feels or how it seems until you look back upon your life and you realize the relentless pursuit of the Lord upon your life. That said, where does a man's will come into play? Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He said in John 3, verse 16, whoever believes in 
him should not perish but have eternal life. And so there seems to be this responsibility that is placed upon people, but nonetheless, those who the Lord desires, he chooses. He says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, for some, this would be a struggle uh, because does this mean that the Lord has not chosen some? Well, the scripture doesn't teach the uh, other side of the coin that God has refused or not chosen some. It just says here that there are those that he chose in him before the foundation of the world. We know from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, that God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there isn't this partial desire from God. His desire is full and complete, very well-rounded for the world in which we live. But notice that this selection, he says, he chose us in him, it's a blessing to be chosen. And he says, before the foundation of the world. Just amazing to think of this timeline before the Father. That even before the foundation of the world, he looked into, uh, from eternity past, our moment in time. And looked into my heart or your heart and said, I want them. I choose them. This is a great and incredible blessing. He has 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 and 10 saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And Paul goes on to say there that he did this for us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So there is this eternal uh, nature to God's work in the life of every individual believer. As it says in Revelation 13, verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship it, except for everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And so there is this book that is written, the book of the life of the Lamb, who was slain and written, notice, before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8. Now, what have we been chosen to? That's the good question. He says there at the end of verse 4, back in Ephesians 1, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So much of the talk about God's election and choosing people uh, is dedicated to the, you know, cosmic decision-making process of God, instead of asking the question, what has God chosen us for? And that seems to be really the biblical emphasis, not just that God chose us, but that he chose us for a reason. And here's what he says, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In other words, his work in us before God and man is holiness and a blamelessness about uh, our lives. And so his desire is to take us and to change us and to transform us, to choose us for a holy life. And so the great blessing of just receiving this deep truth to say, Lord, thank you for choosing me. Lord, thank you for setting your hand upon my life. Lord, thank you for before the foundation of the world, 
wanting me to have a life that is blameless and holy and pure before you. Notice also, though, in verse 5, that there's this other blessing. Not only have we been chosen, but verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. So Paul tells us that part of our great blessing from the Father is that we have been predestined to adoption as sons. That word predestined is a word that regards something that God does for saved people. In other words, he predestines us to something. And uh, here what he's saying is he has predestined the people that he has chosen to or for adoption as sons. Now, in John chapter 3, when Jesus met with Nicodemus at night, he introduced Nicodemus to the concept of being born again. You believe in Christ and you become born again. You receive newness of life. It's a true and wonderful reality. But beyond being born again, there's also this wonderful picture of adoption, not just born into the family, but also adopted into the family. This speaks of uh, an adult status or standing inside of the family of God. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, Paul said, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So there's this great position that we have. We've been adopted. We are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. It's a strong standing before the Father, not just born again as infants before the Father, but adopted as full-fledged heirs through Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 6, another part of this blessing, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, blessed us in Christ. We have a position of blessing, grace, favor flowing our way uh, if we are in Christ Jesus. I think this is a great truth that we need to remember and fight to remember. Everything within us will drift and tend towards legalism. I know even myself as a pastor and as a teacher, there are moments of difficulty. It's hard to continually keep the strong edge of God's grace flowing in uh, each and every uh, sermon. And uh, it's so difficult to maintain that but to remember the great position of blessing and grace that is ours in Christ. Now, in verse 7, he moves on to speak of another part of our blessing in him, not just that we've been chosen and adopted and, and put into a position of grace, but redeemed by the Lord. He says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ 
as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So here Paul begins to speak of redemption. And of course, in order for adoption to fully occur, there had to be a purchase that took place. Now, there are wonderful Bible words that describe what happened to us when we became Christians, when we became born again and gave our lives to him. There's the word justification. Perhaps you've heard that one. It means that someone who was accused uh, is now declared righteous before God. Uh, there's forgiveness uh, as well, beyond justification, that someone who was a debtor has a cancellation of debt. There's adoption, which we just saw. Someone who was a stranger, but who is now a full-fledged son. There's reconciliation spoken of in Scripture. That's where you have an enemy who now becomes a friend. But here we have the word redemption. And this is a word that indicates that someone was once a slave, but has now been granted freedom. And so the question would be, what were we enslaved to and have been set free from through his blood, according to verse 7? Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And so with redemption, we have this act of God by which he himself pays the price for sin in order to set us as human beings free. A beautiful thing. Even in the slave world and market, there would be the purchasing of a slave in order to make him or her your own. But then there would be this kind of redemption where there was a purchasing in order to set free, in order to fully redeem. And that's what Jesus Christ has done uh, for his people. He has set them free from their captivity to sin. Notice where or who gives us that redemption. He says in verse 7, in him. Jesus is the author of that freedom. He says, in him we have, not we are trying to obtain, or someday will have. He says, no, in him we have. We have fully received that freedom from sin. Not that we're walking around as sinless uh, people, fully perfect and glorified here in this life. We are moving towards glorification, to be sure. We are moving towards a place of sinless perfection throughout all of eternity. But here on earth, it's good to understand that in Christ, we are positionally set free from all sin. And so as we walk with the Lord, of course, we will experientially sin. But as we walk with the Lord, the more we walk with him, the closer we draw to him, the more we experience this great position that he has given to us. Uh, I won't be sinless, but I will, if I'm walking with the Lord, sin less than I currently sin. And so we are already recipients of redemption. In him, we have, he says, redemption. And notice the price of redemption. He says, through his blood. And the result, of course, is the forgiveness of our trespasses. And in all of this, of course, you have God working in his will and 
purpose and plan, verse 9 and 10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so just the wonderful plan of God, he's been purposing and planning for our unification unto him, our restoration, our redemption, uh, for a very long time has put this together. And uh, that day is coming when we will be unified unto our Father. In verse 11, he goes on to speak of this blessing even further by talking of our inheritance that we have in him. He says, in him, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Paul refers here to the great inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. And, you know, when, when you gave your life to the Lord, he received you. And, uh, but the better deal, I think, was ours. We received him. We received his position. We received his uh, eternally good name. We received his righteousness. We received his purity. We received his future. And so our life placed into his life a grand inheritance, as Paul would say, indeed. And lastly here for this study, verse 13 and 14, he says, In him you also, and here we are concluding this one sentence in the Greek that began in verse 3. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So when you heard this word, you heard the message of the gospel, and you believed in him. It wasn't enough to hear, but you had to believe. There had to be this faith that was welling up inside of you. You placed your trust into Christ. He said, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul here announces a beautiful part of our inheritance and our blessing that we have received. Every spiritual blessing, he said in verse 3, in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. And one of these major and significant blessings that we've received is that we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, the idea of a seal in Scripture speaks of a lot of different things. You have, first of all, security. You might remember when Daniel's uh, was placed in the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6, that lion's den was sealed. You might remember when Jesus' tomb uh, was sealed in order to secure the tomb. And just the security that we have in the Holy Spirit, uh, indicating that we belong to God and that we're not going anywhere. It also would speak of authenticity. It marked something as truly genuine. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, His presence inside of our lives, marks us as truly genuine believers. The seal would also speak in Scripture of a transaction. In Jeremiah 32, it was used as a receipt, a finished transaction. Uh, and it would also speak of authority, the kingly seal placed upon us, the Holy Spirit inside of our lives and upon our lives is the kingly mark of ownership uh, upon us, authority over us. And so he says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee. He's the down payment, so to speak, 
of a purchased possession to the praise of God's glory. A day is coming where God is going to come and receive all that he has purchased, whom he has given the Spirit of God to, and call us to be with him uh, in heaven, uh, redeemed, covered, experiencing fully in the heavenly places the great blessings and riches that are ours in Christ. I hope you remember the Spirit of God upon your life. He wants to speak to you and lead you and bear fruit through your life. I'm reminded of Galatians 5. Walk in the Spirit that you might not fulfill the lust of the flesh. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.